want to extend my welcome to you today, and it's good to see you if you have your Bibles, if you will, turn uh, to Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11. As you do that, I want to encourage you uh, to pay attention to those who are not able to be with us today. Um, you know, our responsibility uh, for them and to them extends beyond them just being here. Uh, so those who are away on vacation, those who are sick, we have some who are working, uh, be reminded of them and reach out to them during the course of the week. A uh, couple of things in doing that. One, uh, letting them know that you care about them, that you miss them, that you haven't seen them, that they are important to you, but they're also important here to the body of Christ. Uh, also, uh, finding out uh, if there's a way that you can pray for them or help them during the course of the week, their struggles and challenges and difficulties. I was thinking just a moment ago as we were giving attention to our confession, some of you may wonder at times, um, why is everything that we say centered around pointing us to the fact every week that our salvation is in Christ? Why not address felt needs? Well, felt needs come and go and they change. Uh, in fact, they're like the waves of the sea. The thing that is always constant for us is the fact that we are created to be in the presence of God for eternity. Whether that is through sickness, whether we are experiencing uh, hardship, whether we are experiencing great joys in life, those felt needs are up and down. Whether we are dealing with issues at home with uh, spouses or children or other family members, whether we're having hardships at work, all of those things are constantly changing. Uh, but if we are settled in who we are, and we are reminded, if in fact we are believers, and we are reminded that our sights are set on eternity, and if we are reminded that our eternal destiny has been determined by Christ's work on the cross, it will put everything else in the way of our felt needs into perspective. And that's the reason every week we give attention to who we are in Christ. Not to just address some felt need that we have, but to look at the greatest need that we have, and that is to be reconciled to God, and then to either be confronted with whether we are or whether we aren't. And if we are, by virtue of what Christ has done for us, and knowing that that is constant and it remains, which is why this morning I was, again, I was moved again as we looked at the psalm that he is from everlasting, meaning that there has never been a time that there is not God. There never will be a time that God doesn't exist. We're going to see that in the text here again this morning. And that means what? That means that everything is okay if I am with him and in him because he is everlasting, then everything about me is okay today and uh, will be okay for all eternity. 
And Lord, thank you for putting up on Instagram the thing that was mentioned last week. And if you didn't see that, go to Instagram. Is that tomorrow may not be better, but eternity will be better. And we are not about just living for tomorrow. We are about living for eternity. Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. 
By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, of Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sewn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Last week, we gave our attention to considering the definition that the Holy Spirit gave about the word faith. We discovered that faith is not some nebulous thing, and it certainly is not abstract, meaning that it's not apart from something that is concrete and certain. In fact, the definition as we saw it, given by the Holy Spirit, stated the otherwise. Even the word itself means that it is the substance of things hoped for. So faith is not nebulous, it is not abstract, it is substantive. And re Remember that we recall that the word used here is the same word that the author used to point to the nature of Christ when he wrote in the uh, first few verses there uh, of this letter that Christ is the exact imprint of the nature or the substance of God. So faith is substantive. That word, uh, hypostasis, means to be under foundation, is something of substance that holds things up. And we also saw the fact that faith is the evidence of things not seen. 
And we discovered that the word translated evidence or conviction is the same word from which we get the word in the idea of title deed. In other words, here the Holy Spirit wants us to see that faith is equal to having a title deed, like a title deed to a piece of property, a piece of property that we've never seen. And we even mentioned last week that there are individuals who hold title deeds to properties that they have never seen. But the proof of their ownership and the knowledge of their ownership is the fact that they have this piece of paper, this title deed that states the description of the property, tells about the property, and says that they own the property. And the property is identified in it and it stands as evidence that the property is theirs and in our case faith is the title deed to what we own though we have not seen it john calvin put it this way the spirit of god shows us hidden things the knowledge of which cannot reach our senses we're told of the resurrection of the blessed but meantime we are involved in corruption we are declared to be just, and yet sin dwells within us. We just talked about that a moment ago as we were making a confession in our singing. We're confessing those things that, we are, that are true about us because of Christ's righteousness and what He has done, though they may not be true about us in the way that we live, but there is a desire on our part for them to be true, and we seek that in that way. Calvin said, we hear that we're blessed, but meantime we're overwhelmed by untold miseries. We're promised an abundance of good things, but we are often hungry and thirsty. God proclaims that He will come to us immediately, but there are times He seems to be deaf to our cries. What would happen to us if we did not rely on our hope? And if our minds did not emerge above the world, out of the midst of the darkness, through the shining Word of God and by His Spirit, Calvin says, faith is therefore rightly called the substance of things that are still the objects of hope and the evidence of things not seen. Now, why is that important? Well, faith is built on promises. We believe that the promises made by God are true. Promises that have been made by Him. We looked at those promises, some of those promises last week. All of them pointing to the future. So we trust in God. He is the object of our faith. By virtue of us placing our faith and trust in those promises, those things that He has promised, we are trusting Him to fulfill those promises. So when we're talking about salvific faith, we are specifically talking about trusting in the promises that God has made, knowing that He has in Christ fulfilled those promises and that in due time, we will be the recipients of all of those things that He has promised. We're the recipients of the forgiveness of our sins now, meaning that we are not condemned, and yet we have at times things come to our mind and our hearts that seem to want to condemn us, but we are reminded of the promise of God that we're not condemned. When will that 
promise ultimately be fulfilled. When we are in the presence of God, we will realize it and see it because God, if we have trusted in Christ Jesus, will receive us. He will not condemn us. However, if we have not trusted in Christ, then we will be condemned. That's the point that the author of Hebrews is making here as we look at this in relation to salvific faith. And here's the key. Not only are the promises made by God a gift, they are gifts being given, things that we have not earned, we sang about that just a moment ago, things that are not of us, but faith, because it is the title deed, because it is the substance of that, it is a gift as well. That's why Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, and we saw that even earlier in our confession and in our assurance of pardon, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now to show you how this is connected to the promise, I want us to hear from Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21, we hear it this way. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly, that is of the cross of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, dis things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And where does faith come into this? Well, if we read on in chapter 3, and when I came to you, brothers, Paul said, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith the faith that has been given you might not rest in the wisdom of men but rest in the power of God let no one deceive himself if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. 
For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God. In other words, all of these things point to, all of these things are had, all of these things are received by the substance of faith that God has given as a gift that we might, what? That we might know for certain those things that God has promised even if we have not seen them with our physical eyes or even have not sensed them experientially as of yet. The point here is that we are talking about salvific faith. This faith is a gift from God. This title deed is given as a gift and references or makes real the gift, the promises that God related to what? Forgiveness, adoption, reconciliation, eternity with Him. It is this title, this title deed, and the very substance that assures it. Assuring you, giving you conviction that these things are real and which we may not now be able to see physically, but they are certain and they are real and they are real in our hearts. Now, why is this important? It's important because these promises are primarily promises that will be realized in the future. We've already said that. Faith in and of itself is about believing, we've already heard, is the substance of things that are hoped for, meaning they have not yet been realized, and they, faith is the evidence of things not seen. In other words, it's the conviction that that which I hope for is real, but it is such a deep conviction that I know that they are real, even though I have not experienced those things as of yet. So when I talk about heaven, I know that heaven is real. When I talk about being in the presence of God, I know that there is the reality of being in the presence of God. When I, know, when I talk about my adoption as His Son, I know that I am His Son, though I have not realized all that that means yet, I will realize it. And I'm not talking about I will experientially realize what that is for him to be my father and for me to be his son when I am in his presence. When I talk about Christ being my older brother, my senior brother, my elder brother, as scripture speaks of him, I know that in my heart now, but I will experience that in reality when I am in his presence. That is the point. Now why is the author of Hebrews pressing this? He's pressing this because he is exhorting the church to hold fast to these things knowing that they are real. And if these are the things that we long for, and, and mind you, we will see in just a moment, these are the things that faith desires. In other words, those who have saving faith desire these things. For those who don't desire these things, there would be question if they even have any faith. 
but certainly not saving faith because saving faith will drive us to the place to struggle with, yet say and believe and hold to that very verse that we just sang just a moment ago that Mooney pointed us to. That would be such a struggle for some of us at times. But then to say that, no, I don't want any glory for me. I don't want anything that is not mine in Christ. But I know that I have everything that Christ has promised. It's important because these promises are primarily for the future. And this is why faith is necessary. And it's why God gives faith, because His promises are promises that will be realized at a later time. And the author of Hebrews comes in here in chapter 11 and begins to point the church back to the reality of these things. And he gives two fundamental realities that are foundational for everything else that he will say. Look in verse 6. He says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. He's referring to God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Notice first of all, that there is a deep conviction that the God of the Bible exists. I want you to hear that. This faith that pleases God there is a fundamental belief that the God of the Bible exists. Not just an idea that God exists. Not a God that is shaped in our own minds. Not for someone who just says, I believe in God. But the God of the Bible. So, my Muslim friends who reject Christ, they don't believe in the God of the Bible as He has revealed Himself. They talk about God, they point back to Scripture, but they don't believe and trust in, in the faith that pleases God. They do not accept and receive the God of the Bible. Speaking with someone this week, and it reminded me that we by and large are living in a world that has rejected the God of the Bible. There, in fact, there are many churches that have rejected the God of the Bible. They talk about a God who is not a God of wrath, but is only a God of love. There is no God of judgment. And Christ, though He represents us, uh, He didn't die on the cross. And there was, not net, no net, there was no need for the cross because they do not see man as sinful. They see God is good, man is good, God saving men and taking Him to heaven to be with Christ, and Christ who basically becomes a representative of and helps along the way and is the one who, who connects with man and touches man and is man's brother, but ultimately has not died on the cross. That's not the God of the Bible. That is not the God that the Bible reveals. This would not have been lost on the original audience either. Remember, they were Jews. And all good Jews were taught this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This was their confession. It's repeated in another way. When the law was given, God gave them the law in Exodus chapter 20. And what do we hear? 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And you shall have no other gods before you. Now I want you to remember last week we made this comment. And that is that we spoke. (coughs) We spoke about the fidelity of faith. Now we are saying that the gift of the fidelity of faith, that gift being faith itself, is understood in a fidelity to God. In other words, a faithfulness to God who gives promises and the faith to believe the promises. So, so we can make some connections overall. What did we look at the very first thing this morning? In our call to worship, we pointed back to a God who is majestic, who is holy, who is eternal, who cares, who works, who creates, who sustains. Why? Because that is the God that we are looking at, and it is that God who makes promises, and it is only that kind of God that can keep promises. Therefore, the object of the believer's faith is in a God who does these things. The author of Hebrews is pointing that this is fundamental to this faith. But there's a second fundamental reality. And that is the conviction that God is a rewarder of those who seek Him. At the foundation of saving faith is the understanding of the authority of God. The supreme and sovereign judge who is righteous in all His ways. And commands and directs out of the perfection of His goodness toward His image bearers. As a righteous judge, he has the right, I would even argue, doesn't, don't you think he has the responsibility to punish evil and to reward good? This is fundamental to saving faith. And this is a reason that the author of Hebrews exhorted the church. And we dealt with this a couple of weeks ago. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversary. Why? Because God is the one who punishes evil and He rewards good. We already acknowledge that there's no good in us. We have nothing to bring to God. And yet God in His promises through His atoning work in Christ Jesus has made promises to those who would believe and trust in Him. They are found pleasing to God. We know something about what faith means from this text, but we read the rest of this chapter and it points to what faith does. Here's what faith is. Now, what does faith do? Before we look at that, though, for just a moment, we have to ask the question, why in the middle of all of this does the author of Hebrews now go through this long litany of individuals in Scripture and how, and I counted them, y'all count them behind me, not right now, but when you get home. I, I think it was 18 times it said, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. I think it was 18 times. Gives this whole litany of what faith does. And we see what faith does by the way people acted and responded in faith. 
And why does the author of Hebrews do this? Well, in chapter 6, verses 11 through 12, we read, and we desire each one of you, the author says, we desire each one of you to know the same earnestness. What same earnestness? The same earnestness that is being spoken of. The same faith that is being spoken of. The same confidence that is being spoken of. The same earnestness to have full assurance of hope to where? To the end. To persevere to the end so that you may not be sluggish but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In other words, we are to imitate those that we have seen. So he gives these illustrations of faith for their, for their well-being so that they can imitate them. We see that they're given. He wants them to recognize that their salvation and justification is by faith alone. He wants them to recognize and see God's commitment to those who follow Him. He wants them to see and to know the potential cost of their faith. And He wants them to know that without faith they cannot please God. Now for those who are taking notes, we're going to do something real quick in the last few minutes. We'll not deal with these in detail. But in looking at the rest of these examples, we ask the question, what faith does? There are at least 12 things that we see in the rest of this chapter that faith does. In other words, we know what faith is. Now here's what faith does. In verses 4 and 5, I want us to look and see because it's interesting where he begins. He says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. So the first thing that we see that faith does, faith is counted as righteousness. Now don't you find this important? When we look at the account of Abel from Genesis, we hear nothing of the fact that he had faith in God. It doesn't use the word faith. It doesn't use the word trust. It doesn't even use the word that he believed. It just simply says what is stated here, kind of in an abbreviated fashion, is that he offered a sacrifice that was acceptable to God. And that that sacrifice was counted to him as righteousness. The author of Hebrews has been pointing all along that it is the work of Christ and His atoning sacrifice that we must trust and believe in and hold to and cling to for our justification. So what he is trying to do, I believe the author of Hebrews here is trying to do, is help them understand that this is not a new thing. That whoever has been accepted by God and justified by God has been accepted by God and justified by Him based upon their faith in Him. It has been faith in God all along that has justified. Now why is that helpful for us today? Well, we were reminded again just a moment ago in our confession that we cannot be justified by what? By works of the law. We can't be justified by works of the law. We can't do enough good to be justified before God. We can't be good enough. We can't be right enough. We can't be loving enough. We can't be kind enough. We can't serve enough. We can't do enough good deeds. 
We can't do enough of those things to be justified by God. That will not bring justification. That will not bring us to a place to where we can have forgiveness for our sins. And it certainly will not bring us to a place to where we will be seen as if we have never sinned and that we are fully and completely righteous. You see, that's what it takes to please God. And we can't be justified by any other means but our faith and trust in God. So Abel trusted God and his faith in God that he existed, that he judged, and that he was the rewarder of those who seek him was a trusting in God for his salvation. And as he brought that sacrifice, he came with a heart acknowledging that, resting in that, saying, I believe in you. Well, what does that tell us about saving faith for us today? That we come before God, how? We come before him trusting in him Longing to please Him. Longing to be with Him. Desiring to be with Him. Not desiring to, to, to get a new car. Not desiring to get a better job. Not desiring to get a, a better house. Not desiring to get a better education. Not desiring for this to be mended or this to be fixed or this to be helped. All of these are felt needs that we would have. But no, ultimately desiring to please God. Justification comes by faith. In other words, faith is counted as righteousness. The second thing we see is that faith is an issue of the heart. It impacts the heart. Look at what it has to say. When we look in verse 7, it says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark. In reverent fear constructed an ark. I don't know if you've ever paid attention to that. But as I was studying this text, I mean, no doubt Noah built an ark. And in our minds, it's as though God said do it and he did it. And he did do it. But it was out of the condition of his heart where he reverently sought to obey God. In other words, he came, it was a condition of the heart. Well, what does that tell us about faith? Well, we can have all kinds of outward conformity, but faith and trust in God begins by a changed heart. It begins by our heart desiring and longing for God. It's the reason we prefaced everything earlier, and we looked at what we looked at that we were singing. We were saying our, our hearts are desiring of this for those who profess. Christ, for those who trust in God, for those who place their faith and trust in Him. In other words, what we are saying is, is that if you are here, or whoever may think that they trust in God, if there is not a desire at the very depths of their heart to know God and to please God, then whatever they do outwardly is not a reflection of a heart that is looking toward, bent toward, longing for, desiring God. I just want to pause here a moment and just ask you, is that where your heart is? Do you want to please God? If you're young, if you're old, 
Do you want to know God? Do you want to be near Him? Do you want to please Him? Do you desire Him more than anything else in all of life? Because the rest of these illustrations are pointing to people that were just that way. The third factor is, is that we see that faith obeys God. Look at verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go up to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went. He was called to go and he went. How did he go? He went not knowing where he was going. He just went. God said go, and he went, and he obeyed. Faith is demonstrated and reflected in our obedience to God. An obedience to God that says, God, I desire you, I long for you, what you say, that's what I want, that's what I'll do. The fourth thing is, is that faith expects God to keep his word. Look at verses 11 and 12. Going back to Sarah. But Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered Him, God, faithful, who had promised. God had said that this is what I will do. And against all odds, and with everything looking like it wouldn't happen, Sarah placed her faith and trust in God for Him to keep his promises. You said, oh, but when I go back and I look at the Scriptures, that's not what I see. We have the commentary on the back side of the Holy Spirit saying, this was in her heart. There's not a contradiction here. Were there challenges along the way for her? Certainly there was. I've already heard a testimony this morning of someone that has said, through the course of the week, these were some things that were happening to me. And I knew that they weren't right. And it wasn't the way I should be and wasn't the way I should be feeling. And, and, and then I, I was different. Not, there's this ebb and flow. And there was this ebb and flow in Sarah. But ultimately it comes to the end that we know that God will keep His Word. Now, I don't want to ask you this morning. If you've trusted in Christ, you're forgiven. Do you really believe that you're forgiven by God? That you're not condemned? Is there an inkling of fear that somehow or another you're going to get in the presence of God and you're going to recognize that no, I, I am condemned? You shouldn't be. Because God's going to keep His promise. Is there any thought in your mind that you are going to get into the presence of God and somehow He will say, no, I don't know you? Or are you going to trust in God that as you have trust in the atoning work of Christ, and your heart is toward Him, and you long for Him, you love Him, not that you're perfect, but that you long for Him, and that you love Him, there should be no question in your mind that when you come into His presence, that He will receive you as His son or His daughter. Why? Because God keeps His promises. Faith informs us of this. Faith is the substance that tells us that this is true because God keeps His promises. The fifth thing is, is that faith willingly gives up everything for God. Look at verses 17 and 18. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, now listen to this language, offered up Isaac, 
And he who had received the promises, in other words, Abraham, who had received the promises, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He didn't miss a turn in there. Here Abraham had been given a promise that he was going to have this nation. It had to come through Isaac. He had already been through all the struggles with that. And now God has told him to sacrifice him. And we get the picture here that even with all of that being the case, and everything, all of his hope seemingly resting in this one thing, everything that he can understand on this earth is sealed up in this one thing, and yet he is willing to give it up. For God. You say, well, that's greater faith than I have. I want to encourage you. Give consideration to your lives, to your faith. These are hard things to hear, but these are the illustrations of how faith played out. So whatever it is that you are holding on to right now, thinking that your whole world and your whole life exists in this, Ask yourself the question, am I willing to give that up for God? I don't believe it could be any more pointed than in the illustration of Abraham. Look at the sixth thing. Faith trusts God for life after death. Look at verse 19. He considered, that is, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him up from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That he was able to raise him up. Seventh, faith doesn't fear man, but fears God. Look at verses 23 through 28. By faith Moses, when he was born was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Well, what, was, what had the king said? Well, Pharaoh had said, kill all the male children. Well, what were, they, what were they not afraid of? Were they afraid that if they kept him that he would be killed? The issue here rests in the fact that along with that, if you didn't kill your son, and they found that you didn't kill your son, and if you wound up with a son, who was also going to die? You were, because you had disobeyed the king's edict. They said, we're willing to put our lives on the line to preserve our child. In other words, we're not worried about self-preservation. We are concerned with the life of this one, knowing that to kill him would be wrong. Faith doesn't fear man. Look on down a little bit farther. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward, and by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. You say, but oh, but wait a minute. He fled because he was afraid of the king. Not according to this. Why did he flee? 
He fled because he had already purposed in his heart that he was not of that lineage. He had associated himself with the people of God and he was seeking God. You see, faith doesn't fear man, but it fears God. You don't hear me say much about these things and we're going to talk about them in detail. But this week, we made mention last week of the SBC and the convention that was held this past week. You heard a few comments about it last week, not making an issue of it now. I was troubled because our denomination is more afraid of man than they are of God. They are more concerned with pleasing our culture and man than they are with upholding the Word of God. Those are serious things. But you know what? Those same things can be true of our own lives. As we acquiesce, as we abdicate responsibility, as we don't stand for and speak about the things that we ought to speak about, this past week, our Connect group began a, a worldview study, and uh, we listened to an interview between a, a pastor and, and an atheist uh, young lady. And through the course of that, uh, I was reminded again of the grace of his tone and the care and concern. And yet he did not acquiesce. He didn't abdicate his pastoral responsibility. He didn't set aside the Word of God. But he graciously said, this is what God's Word says. This is, this, this is what it means. This is what it means in your life. It's what it means in my life. Point is, is that we cannot be afraid of man. We need to be fearful of God. The eighth thing that we recognize about faith is that faith chooses Christ. Look at verse 26. It's incredible. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. You say, well, he didn't know anything about Christ. Oh, no, he knew God. He knew God. God had enabled him to know who he was and he feared God and had already recognized that he could not be a part of a lifestyle that stood against the people of God. And he was more intent on following Christ, chose Christ. That's what it means to trust Christ today. If you haven't trusted Christ, it means to trust Him, to choose Him above everything else in life. I would just ask you, the faith that you profess today, is it a faith where you have consciously, knowingly chosen Christ and His atoning work above everything else? And is it a faith that informs your living to that end? That's what the author of Hebrews was trying to communicate, that this is what it meant for them to say they trusted Christ. This is what they were holding on to. Nine, faith enables one to experience deliverance. Look at verses 29 through 31. Now we love this part. We're all about claiming miracles. We love to see miracles. We love to see great things happen. 
And they do. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. And by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given friendly welcome to the spies. In other words, great miracles are known and experienced by those who have faith. Deliverance will come. And you know what? It will. You know the greatest miracle was the fact that God in the incarnation in His Son Jesus Christ came and made Himself like Him brothers, like His brothers, and died and was resurrected, rose again, and has promised us eternal life. And His resurrection is our resurrection. And you know the greatest miracle? The greatest miracle is, is that I will draw my last breath and I will enter into the presence of God, forgiven, whole, made the Son of God to reign with Him, to live with Him, to enjoy Him, to worship Him, to rest in Him for all eternity. There's no greater deliverance There's no greater deliverance. There's not a deliverance of any kind that compares to that deliverance. But we will experience some deliverances. But what else do we know about faith? Well, faith enables one to experience intense suffering and hardship. Look at verses 35 through 38. Women receive back their dead by the resurrection, which meant what? Somebody died. They suffered grief before they saw the resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned They were sewn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats. Uh, I don't know if you recall much of what took place uh, in uh, uh, in the Roman Colosseums, but they actually took Christians and they put the skins of animals on them and release them into the Colosseum for wild animals to chase them down and to kill them and destroy them was part of their torture and punishment uh, uh, for professing Christ. Destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. And here's the greatest statement of all, of whom the world was not worthy. Faith enables ones to experience intense and severe suffering. Faith enables victories in life. Look in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and this whole list. Is that faith, trusting in God, will mean that there are deliverances and there are victories, but there's also suffering and hardship. And then finally, if you will, look in verse 39. Faith perseveres. 
Now I want you to get this if you haven't already gotten it. Salvific faith is not something that takes place in a moment in time on a decision that I want heaven and I want Jesus. There's faith. That's not what Scripture teaches. So what does that rule out? Well, that rules out individuals who, we have said before, who have prayed a prayer and have gone off and they have lived life without consideration for God and the things of God. Everything we've said this morning stands against that as saving faith. Everything we've heard, everything that the author of Hebrews has pointed to, has said, that can't be so. So what does that mean for us? Well, if we are attempting to witness to friends and family members with that in mind, just be reminded that we are not helping them understand what it means to follow Christ and to have faith and to be people of faith. So you're not doing them any good. If you're trying to get them to pray a prayer, you're not doing them any good. If the extent of our conversations are only centered around just pray and trust in Jesus and everything's okay, we are not being faithful or helpful in any way to them. What does faith do? Faith continues. That is the whole point of Hebrews. Faith continues to the end. It is a life's work. It is a life's work. And all of these that we have just mentioned, those who lived a long time, those who died young, those who experienced victories, those who experienced hardship and struggles and suffering, all of these, what does it say? though commended for their faith, did not receive in its fullness what was promised. Did not receive what was promised. They persevered to the end, looking ahead to what was better. And that is God. That is not all of Hebrews chapter 11. But that's all we'll say about it today. With this in mind. This question. We understand from Hebrews 11 what faith is. And we understand from Hebrews 11 what faith does. Now I want to ask you this question. Do you trust? Do you have faith in this God who exists and does what He has revealed Himself to do in Scripture? Do you trust Him? Do you trust Him? And if so, 
do you profess that faith? Not meaning that you hold it, not meaning that you keep it, but do you profess that faith? I want to ask you today, whenever we conclude our service, if you've never professed it, but you believe that and trust in the atoning work of Christ, will you let one of the pastors know today that yes, this is what I believe, this is what I profess, this is what I bank my life on and will from this day forward to the day I draw my last breath.